Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Substack, Patreon, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 22nd episode is the eminent author and political scientist, John J. Mearsheimer. He's the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, where he has taught since 1982. He graduated from West Point in 1970 and then served five years as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. He received his Ph.D. in political science from Cornell in 1980. Professor Mearsheimer has written extensively about security issues and international politics more generally. He has published six books, and I invited him here today to discuss his most recent article in Foreign Affairs, The Inevitable Rivalry, America, China, and the Tragedy of Great Power Politics. I'm not sure if it's due to his military training or because the University of Chicago has a reputation for upholding free speech, but you will soon see that Professor Mearsheimer is not afraid to speak his mind, no matter where his thoughtful conclusions may lead. John, welcome to the Hale Report. Thank you so much for joining me here today. We're both in Chicago, but not exactly in the same place. It's my pleasure to be here, Lyric, and thank you very much for having me on the show. So, John, um, I gave you a little forewarning of this, but I always begin by asking my guests how they became interested in the subjects that became their life's work. I understand that you were just 17 when you enlisted in the Army, and that would have been, I think, during the Vietnam War or at the beginning of it. And then you went to West Point. Most young men I knew at that time were taking steps in the opposite direction. So what, I, what I'd like to, to ask you is what motivated you at that time? Well, when I was 17 years old, uh, I had dreams of being a professional athlete. And uh, those were unrealistic dreams. My father had other dreams for me, which is that he wanted me to go to West Point. Uh, my father's great dream in life was to go to West Point himself, and he could not get in because of his eyesight. So he lived vicariously through his children. I actually had a sister who went to West Point and a brother who went to the Naval Academy. But anyway, I was the oldest child, and he wanted me to go to West Point. And the best way to get into West Point at that point in time for me was to join the Army. Uh, spend a year as an enlisted person in the Army, and then you were highly likely to get an appointment to West Point. And that's exactly what happened to me. The truth is, though, Lyric, I really hated the military, not for philosophical reasons, but for constitutional reasons. I hate shaving. I hate sleeping in the woods. I hate uniforms. Uh, I hate authority. So the military was not a congenial place for me. But I stuck it out for actually 10 years, uh, which were coterminous with the Vietnam War. But then I got into academia, and uh, here we are today. Oh, so what, um, what sport did you play? I played football, basketball, and baseball. which Everything. Were, were, yeah, the three traditional sports. I love sports. I was very good, but I was not truly excellent, and there was no way I could 
you know, play at an elite college and certainly never be a professional athlete. But, you know, as many young boys then and even today, uh, and now many girls, you know, dream about being professional athletes. And, uh, and I was one of them. Well, you know, I started out as a professional figure skater. You probably didn't know that. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and it helped pay my way through Northwestern, actually. But I think those, you know, all of that is, it's, it's about a kind of discipline that you get from sports and from the military service that you had. It, it, I think it does affect your constitution, and I think it affects your endurance as well in ways that you probably, you know, uh, take for granted compared to other people. I think there's absolutely no question about that. that both sports and, and going to a place like West Point teaches you self-discipline, teaches you to work very hard. And in a funny way, it teaches you to suffer. And life involves a lot of suffering. You sometimes have to fight your way through really wicked problems. And, you know, having some experience at that when you're young, I think comes in very valuable later in life. So I, you know, describe a lot of my success to my four years at West Point and also the way my parents raised me, to be honest. Yes. Oh, that's always the critical, always the critical thing. Well, I never got to compete in academics in the, I, the way that you did after I graduated from University of Chicago. That was about enough for me, <laughs> I think, <laughs> in terms of that sort of uh, rigor. So another question I wanted to ask you, and, um, you know, looking at the books that you've written um, as well and some of the articles, who are your biggest influencers? You wrote a book about Liddell Hart, and I hope you'll share a little bit about him and why he was such an important figure to you. And I imagine Hans, uh, Hans Morgenthau as well, um, who is maybe at the UFC before you arrived there. But um, he, they seem to represent schools of thought. Um, that that you have continued. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to explain a little bit about international relations theory in that light in terms of the people who contributed to it and where you fall in that heritage. Yes, there's no question that we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Uh, I think a lot of people like to think, you know, they came up with all these interesting ideas of this way of looking at the world all by themselves. But that is never the case. There are always people who came before you, and those people uh, have a significant influence on how you think about uh, international politics or any other subject. Of course, what you do is you try to have a different view than your predecessors had. Not completely different, but what you like to do is make an argument that looks innovative. Uh, so I'm in the realist tradition. And in that realist tradition, there are really sort of two schools of thought. One which is represented by Hans Morgenthau, who, as you pointed out, was at the University of Chicago uh, for a long time, but before I got there who was what some people call a human nature realist. And his basic argument was that human beings are hardwired with an animus dominandi. They want to dominate. And those human beings, of course, run states, and therefore they push states, the countries that they live in, to uh, pursue power. That's the human nature side of the story. The other side of the story, which is mainly identified with Kenneth Waltz, 
argues that it's the structure of the international system. It's the architecture of the international system, not human nature, that pushes states to pursue power. I am not a human nature realist like Morgenthau. I'm much more of a structural realist like Kenneth Waltz. But the big difference between me and Waltz is that I argue that states are interested in achieving hegemony, gaining as much power as possible. Waltz, on the other hand, argues that it's dangerous to pursue too much power. So the similarity between me and Waltz, to get back to your basic starting point, is that both of us focus on structure as the driving force. But he sees structure as a more benign factor than I do. Well, uh, you get into this in your article in Foreign Affairs, um, but before, and which is mostly about China and the United States. But before we go there, I was hoping to sneak in a couple of questions about other areas of the world that you've also written about. Our two hotspots, one, the Ukraine, um, and the other kind of Iran, Afghanistan. And now there's concern of the Soviet, uh, the Russian troops, rather, um, massing on the border with Ukraine, that something might be happening. And you've written that actually the U.S. caused that problem. So where do what do you think the possible moves are and do we need to be concerned about China about Russia rather in the same way that we are concerned about China I think it was a major mistake on the United States's part uh, to move NATO eastward up to the Russian borders Vladimir uh, Putin would agree with you I he think. would agree <laughs> right Actually, the NATO expansion started in 1999 uh, when Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic were integrated into NATO. Then there was another large expansion in 2004. And in 2008, at the Bucharest summit, uh, the Bucharest NATO summit in April 2008, uh, NATO said at the end of that summit that Georgia and Ukraine would become part of NATO. And that was the source of huge trouble from the get-go, and it continues to be a source of huge trouble today. You want to remember that August 2008, there was a war between Georgia and Russia, which I believe was a direct result of that April 2008 summit. And then in February 2014, a war broke out over Crimea and over Ukraine. And that war continues to fester today. And in my opinion, the taproot of that conflict is the fact that we continued to march NATO eastward. And the Russians continually told us that this was unacceptable. And it all blew apart in first August 2008 and then in February 2014. And we are now in a situation, which I find hard to believe, where Secretary of Defense Austin is going to Eastern Europe and telling the Ukrainians and the Georgians that they will become part of NATO. What the Russians have done in response, and it makes perfect sense from their point of view, even if we don't like it, is they've made it clear they will wreck Ukraine as a functioning country before they will allow it to become part of NATO. So in effect, what we're doing, and this includes the Biden administration now and 
the preceding, preceding administrations, is leading the Ukrainians down the primrose path by telling them they will become part of NATO when in fact they won't, and in the process enraging the Russians and giving the Russians incentives to do terrible things to their country. This is why I think we are principally responsible for this conflict. Furthermore, this conflict is not in our interest. The principal threat that we have facing us now is China, not Russia. Russia is a far weaker great power than China is. And if anything, we need the Russians with us to help contain the Chinese. It makes absolutely no strategic sense to push the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. And fight on two fronts then, yeah. Yes. And and it's, the reason that we restored relations with China, of course, is to buttress ourselves against the Russians. It would make sense that we should do the opposite of that in this case. But obviously, somebody's not thinking. <laughs> no, that's that's right. If you think about it, as you say, during the Cold War, the last you know two decades of the Cold War, we formed an alliance with the Chinese against the Soviet Union. Exactly. It made perfect strategic sense. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what we should do today is form an alliance with the Russians against the Chinese, because it's the Chinese today who are the equivalent of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Right. Well, I guess somebody hasn't thought that through at the level they should, but hopefully one of one of those people will be listening to this and maybe think about it a little more. You know, I'm very envious of the fact, John, I remember uh, when you told me that you were going to Iran. And that was fairly recently ago. Um, when you went to Iran, what were your impressions? And do you think we should allow, allow quote unquote, Iran to become a nuclear power? Is Iran a danger to us? Or are we trying to fight on another front simultaneously with China and Russia? Uh, let me just say a few words about when I went to Iran in 2018. Uh, the thing that struck me the most, to be honest, was the almost complete absence of any American influence in the country. As you know, there's virtually no country on the planet that you can go to where there isn't a McDonald's or a Kentucky Fried Chicken or a substantial amount of evidence of American influence. Iran is the one country I've gone to where you saw no evidence of uh, American influence. Furthermore, what you did see a lot of evidence of was Chinese influence. And, you know, you and I were talking a minute ago about how we are, in effect, driven the Russians and the Chinese together. Very important to understand that we're driving the Iranians and the Chinese together as well. And this will not be to our advantage over the long term, because this will give the Chinese a permanent foothold in the Middle East, and that will cause us all sorts of problems. But the United States is deeply hostile to Iran, uh, especially now over the nuclear deal. And I don't see any prospect uh, of that situation improving. And the end result, of course, will be closer and closer relations between China and Iran. Now, you ask, should Iran be allowed to become a nuclear power? Uh, I think the answer is no. I think it's in America's interest not to allow Iran to have nuclear weapons. 
the fewer countries on the planet that have nuclear weapons, the better from our point of view. And in fact, Lyric, the ideal situation is one where only one country has nuclear <laughs> right. weapons. Plus. Right. <laughs> That's not in the cards. But what we want to do here is minimize the number of new nuclear powers. And if Iran gets nuclear weapons, the Saudis have made it clear that they'll follow suit. I think if the Saudis follow suit, the Egyptians, the Iraqis, the Turks won't be far behind. And we do not want that to happen. But the problem that we face is that the Trump administration, uh, the significant support from the Netanyahu government in the Middle East or in Israel, uh, caused us to pull out of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that we had with Iran. Netanyahu and Trump both thought it was a terrible deal. They pulled out and they thought that we could put maximum pressure on the Iranians with economic sanctions, get the Iranians to throw up their hands and surrender to us and completely give up their nuclear program. Uh, that has not worked very well. And if anything, uh, those sanctions are having the opposite effect. The Iranians are moving further and further down the nuclear weapons road. And it doesn't look like we're going to be able to go back to the JCPOA. Uh, and if you ask me, I think the likelihood that Iran will end up as a nuclear armed power in the Middle East is quite high. And this is not in our interest. So this is another case where we have made a huge mess. As I said before, we made a huge mess over Ukraine and more generally with regard to relations with Moscow. We've made a huge mess with regard to Iran. And that doesn't even take into account Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, those two, you know, lost wars. Moreover, what we're going to talk about in my paper uh, regarding China. Right. Well, you know, that brings up the issue of energy and energy independence. We, I, I've just been writing a paper about that. And, you know, now that we've become energy sufficient, we're, we have started to worry about climate change and so forth. And we're looking at full electrification. There are a lot of problems with that technically and in every other way, but one of them is geopolitical. Um, if we remain um, on carbon fuel that we have ourselves and that the Middle East supplies, then uh, we don't need to look to China for anything in terms of our energy needs. But once we decide to have all electric cars, and I think by to 2036, GM says they'll only make electric cars. We will be dependent on China for rare earths that we do not yet produce here, even though we could, we probably won't. And does that, is that shifting also, um, is that creating um, a, the pivot towards China? Is that also based on our energy needs in any part, do you believe? Well, I think what's really driving the train more than anything else at this point in time and for the next decade is the fact that China gets over 30% of its oil from the Persian Gulf or from the Middle East. China is a huge consumer of Persian Gulf oil. And one of the principal reasons that the Chinese are building a blue water navy is they want to protect their sea lines of communication between uh, the South China Sea and uh, the Persian Gulf, because they want to make sure that those sea lines are secure. So the Chinese have their eye 
on the Gulf. And this is why they're very interested in having good relations, not only with Iran, as I described a few minutes ago, but also with Saudi and the other Gulf states, because they get all that oil. And you can rest assured, if the Chinese are interested in the Persian Gulf, we will be interested in the Persian Gulf, regardless of what our energy needs are. So I think for the foreseeable future anyway, there's going to be a security competition in the Gulf between the United States and China. It's just beginning now. Uh, I think the area of the world that's going to matter less and less for the United States moving forward is Europe because there is no potential hegemon in the region. Germany is depopulating. Russia is not a serious threat to conquer Europe. So we don't have that much to worry about regarding Europe, despite all our trouble that we've caused with the Russians. But the Gulf, and especially Asia, East Asia, uh, those are the areas that we're really going to care about moving forward. So is that why we left um, Afghanistan? You, you've written about Afghanistan, said that we couldn't win. The Taliban had 30% of the, I think back in 2018, 30% of the country, and they would soon have all of it, that it was inevitable. Um, how do you think we handled the withdrawal? And it, d could that cause any lasting damage to us? Well, I, I think that we should have gotten out of Afghanistan a long time ago. It's the longest war in American history, and almost everyone knew that it was unwinnable for at least uh, the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, and what was the point of staying in a war that was unwinnable? Uh, you could make the argument that getting out would have some catastrophic consequences. But if anything, getting out was a net plus, because you weren't going to win anyway. And you freed up resources, both material resources and intellectual resources, to deal with China, uh, to focus on East Asia. So it was a very wise move to get out. Now, was the exit mishandled? Uh, I have my doubts about that simply because I'm not sure there was any smooth way you could have gotten out of Iraq or out of Afghanistan. And here's my argument on that one. If you signal that you're planning to leave very soon and you start making the preparations for a massive evacuation, you send a signal to your Afghani allies that you're leaving and they'll roll over and play dead immediately because they know you're not going to be there to support them. So you, the United States, have a vested interest in making it clear that you're going to withdraw gradually, right? But the problem is that they still have no incentive to really fight because they know you're going to be gone. And therefore, once you take one major step towards withdrawal, the whole house of cards collapses on you. And this is what happened. So I don't see how we could have gotten out smoothly, because, again, any time we signaled to them that we were making preparations to leave, the whole thing would come unglued, which is what happened. I think we're going to pivot a little more towards China now. I was reading your book um, this weekend, um, The Great Delusion, which I highly recommend to everybody listening. Um, and you explain the fallacy of what you call economic independence theory. 
And I had a recent conversation with one of my daughters who lives in Taiwan. And she was arguing with me that um, it's really not going to, there's not going to be a war between China and the United States over Taiwan because it's not in either party's economic interests. It just makes no sense. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, I wish I had had John here to, <laughs> to make a better argument more than Norman Angel about why that isn't true. But I think it's, it's really an important, an important theory. And I think people um, would be quite interested in understanding why those economic ties don't preclude military conflict or conflict of any kind, really. I would note, Lyric, that I have given my standard talk that China cannot rise peacefully probably about 130 times. Okay. <laughs> and I would say... We'll put a link of, <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> 30, of, 30 of those times were in China. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I would say that in the overwhelming majority of cases, the standard argument that is used against me is economic interdependence theory. I figure. Mm -hmm. And this... this so, so your daughter was going to an argument that I'm very familiar with. And it's an argument that given the prosperity that both sides enjoy because of all of this economic intercourse, who would dare start a war that kills the goose that lays the golden eggs, right? This, this is the basic argument. Now, I often point out to people, that before World War I, this gets back to your point about Norman Angel, there was a great deal of economic interdependence in Europe. At the same time, there was an intense security competition between the Triple Entente, that was France, Britain, and Russia, and Germany, right? And what happened was war broke out after the July crisis in 1914. Indeed, World War I broke out. So despite all of this economic interdependence that you had before World War I, that Norman Angel and others saw as a reason that there would be no world war, you indeed had a world war. And what happens is, in my story, is that issues involving security, involving security, survival trump considerations about prosperity. People privilege security over prosperity. So when you look at China and the United States today, there's no question that they benefit in all sorts of ways from this economic competition or economic cooperation. But the fact is, there's an intense security competition going on as well. And one could easily imagine that security competition leading to a war, despite the prosperity. Just think about Taiwan. The Chinese have made it very clear that if Taiwan were to declare its independence, despite the economic consequences, they would go to war. So you can tell stories where even though it would hurt both sides economically, they end up fighting for good old-fashioned security reasons. So this is my argument as to why you can't place too much emphasis on prosperity. Just one other quick point on this. 
there's actually quite a bit of decoupling taking place between the two countries. And all of that economic interdependence in 10, 15 years might not be there. There may be some, you know, economic interdependence, but not anywhere near as much as there is today. You know, people have argued over the past few decades that the economic interdependence today, because of all these convoluted supply chains, is such that neither side could afford to fight a war, especially the Americans, because they're so heavily dependent on these uh, international supply chains. But that world is beginning to change. COVID had an influence on that as well. Indeed, indeed. So, so the economic interdependence may weaken over time. But again, my point is, even if it doesn't weaken, it's not a strong guarantor of success. I think, by the way, Lyric, the best reason to think that there won't be a war is the presence of nuclear weapons. I think it's very important that both sides constantly remind each other and remind themselves that they operate in a nuclear world. And if we start shooting at each other in the South China Sea or over Taiwan, uh, there is always the possibility that we'll escalate to the nuclear level. I, I think that will go a long way uh, to causing deterrence between the two sides. Mutually assured destruction. Yes. How did we get here? Um, you know, when I first went to China in 1979, China was quite weak, powerless, basically, and full of poverty. You, I think you perfectly describe in your book, by the way, or in the article, um, the punch bowl everybody was drinking from in D.C. in the 1990s. The end of history was nigh. Um, you have a great quote I would like to share with everybody. Liberal triumphalism pervaded the D.C. establishment in the 90s. U.S. policymakers assumed that global peace and price prosperity would be maximized by spreading democracy, promoting an open international economy, and strengthening international institutions. So that was the liberal dream that led to where we are now. Um, uh, what did we do wrong? Well, basically, the key starting point is to remember that the two building blocks of power are population size and wealth. And if you go back to 1979 and your description of China when you first went there, they had a lot of people, but they didn't have much that's wealth. That's right. That's what exactly. you're saying. And that's, that's why China was not considered a great power when you went there. In 1990, when the Cold War is over, right, China still has a lot of people, obviously. In fact, it has 4.7 times as many people as the United States in 1990, but it still does not have a lot of wealth. It has 175th, the per capita GNP of the United States, which means it is an underdeveloped or backwards country economically. So the question is, how should the United States think about China at the start of the unipolar moment, after the Cold War ends? And if you help China to grow economically over the next 20 or 30 years, you're going to take a country that has a lot of people and make it wealthy. And that country is going to be extremely wealthy, in large part because it's got so many people it may end up being more wealthy than the United States because it has more people. 
Okay, so the question is, what do you do starting in 1990 vis-a-vis -vis China, if you're the United States? And what we pursued was a classical liberal strategy uh, where we decided that we would actually help China to grow economically. We would fuel its economic growth. We would integrate it into the open international economy that we had created after World War II. We would integrate it into international institutions like the World Trade Organization. And the end result, it would become prosperous. And this would not be a problem because China would turn into a democracy. And we all know that democracies don't fight other democracies. Democracies don't engage in massive human rights violations. And therefore, we would live happily ever after because China was a democracy. And furthermore, to use Robert Zellick's famous term, China would become a responsible stakeholder. It would be content to operate in an American-led international order. Even though it was much more powerful, you know, in the 21st century than it was in 1990, and it was much more powerful relative to the United States in the 21st century than it was in 1990, it would be content to let us lead the system. They would follow our orders. They would be a responsible stakeholder. They would be a democracy. Realists like me, who care greatly about the balance of power, said this is foolishness in the extreme. You're turning this country into a peer competitor. Is there any other example in history of a great power doing anything like this? There is no other example. It's, There's you no know, other China example. had incredible branding, it, the, the China dream. There was something about that that really captured I think, the imaginations of a lot of people and led to this over four administrations, I think, until yes. Trump. What happened with, with Donald Trump in China? Because that's, that's when this started to unravel. And when China's perception, the beneficent perceptions that most Americans had about China started to turn, and they've turned dramatically now to the opposite of what they used to be. What was it about Donald Trump or would it have, have happened anyway under any president? What was he able to tap into that the previous administrations just didn't get? Well, let me say a few words about Trump, and then I'll tell you why I don't think Trump was the principal cause of the change. Uh, there's no doubt that when Trump ran in the Republican primaries in 2016, and when he ran in the general election against Hillary Clinton, that he bashed engagement, which was our liberal policy towards China, at every turn. Trump hated the idea of an open international economy. He liked tariffs. Trump hates institutions, international institutions. He especially hated the WTO. He was not interested in promoting democracy. He didn't care whether China became a democracy or not. And in fact, Trump basically thought, not only the Chinese, but our allies as well were taking us to the cleaners with unfair trade deals and so forth and so on. So this man, he ran against engagement with China. And as soon as he moved into the White House, he ended engagement. 
and he adopted a policy of containment. It, it's manifestly clear that a marked shift from engagement to containment took place with Trump. Nevertheless, I don't think Trump was that important for the shift. My argument is that during the unipolar moment, which in my opinion lasted from about 1990 to 2016, right, you could pursue engagement because China was not a great power and you didn't worry about China, right? But what happens by 2016, 2017, when Trump comes along, is that China has grown so powerful that unipolarity has come to an end, and we have moved into a multipolar world. The other dimension to this story, Lyric, is that Putin brings the Russians back from the dead. The Russians are dead in the 90s. The Russians are brought back from the dead. So what happens here is, through the early decades, early year, years of the 21st century, China becomes a great power. Russia comes back from the dead and is once again a great power. And we're in a multipolar world. And when you're in a multipolar world, you can't pursue engagement anymore. You have to engage in containment. So what happens is that Trump can capitalize on this change in the structure of the situation. The movement from engagement to containment follows from the shift from unipolarity to multipolarity, and Trump does that. Now, what's the evidence, the best evidence that that line of argument is correct? The best evidence is what President Biden does when he follows Trump mm -hmm. and becomes president. Right. That's right. Biden doesn't go back to engagement. And remember, President Biden, when he was Senator Biden and, and was uh, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and President Biden, when he was Vice President Biden, was a profoundly, a profound opponent, uh, excuse me, was a profound proponent of engagement. But when he moves into the White House in January of 2021, what does he do? He embraces containment. He follows in Trump's footsteps. He does not. Which surprised the Chinese. Surprised the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And surprised many Americans who thought that he would abandon containment and go back to engagement. But we're now in a multipolar world and China is our principal rival. So this is going to be containment for as far as the eye can see. As this was all happening, I have a question for you. Why didn't Japan say anything to us? You know, they're, they have more, you know, they're more suspicious about China as a competitor to them. Um, why didn't they raise their hand a little more and say, this engagement stuff, guys, are you, or why didn't Taiwan, why weren't they more proactive to course correct U.S. policy throughout this entire time? I, I went to Taiwan, I believe it was in 2014, and I had a one-on-one -on -one hour long meeting with President Ma, uh, who was then the president of Taiwan. And I told him that I thought that pursuing a policy of engagement uh, toward China was insane for Taiwan. He of course was a, a big proponent of engaging China. Uh, and uh, I told him that from my point of view, it made absolutely no sense for Taiwan 
to help make China more powerful when the Chinese had made it clear that they wanted to swallow up uh, Taiwan. If anything, I thought President Ma should be telling the United States uh, to pursue a containment policy, not an engagement policy. But if anything, President Ma thought that I was dead wrong. Now you ask yourself, why is this the case? I think that President Ma basically bought the American view that by engaging China, we would turn it into a democracy and into a responsible stakeholder, and we would live happily ever after. He thought engagement was a smart policy. Uh, and he thought that if we moved to containment, that would not be good for Taiwan. Now, my guess is that the Japanese thought the same way. Uh, the Japanese manifested no interest in containment. They went along with engagement all along the way. Uh, and uh, it made no sense from their point of view as well. They should have been fully in support of some sort of containment policy. They should have been fully in support of trying to slow down Chinese economic growth. China, you know, has far more people than Japan does. This is not even close. Uh, if, if, if China develops a per capita GNP that looks anything like Japan's per capita GNP, it is going to be an incredibly more powerful country than Japan. This is not in Japan's interest. The Japanese now recognize this. The Taiwanese now recognize it. But why they didn't recognize it years earlier uh, is probably because they were they had drunk the Kool-Aid, right? The, the, they thought that, you know, uh, engagement with China, this set of liberal policies that we were pursuing, uh, would have magical effects. So you're saying basically in your, in your article that it's too late now to turn back the clock, that China is a juggernaut, and the only thing that could stop it would be some kind of internal crisis that you don't see coming because of the unity of nationalism within China now, the support for the government and so forth. But I wonder if, as China seems to be closing itself off to the world, to China scholars as well, many people don't know when they'll ever get back, um, and China in its history has closed off, uh, maybe they're not going to get aggressive. Maybe instead they're going to batten down the hatches and close the doors. And as they do that, especially in the realm of technology, the lack of interaction with their peers and also this, all these new regulations that have just been pouring out over, the, over 2021 um, to regulate businesses and uh, entrepreneurs, um, won't that finally have the kind of effect that the liberals said that it might over time, that China not becoming more democratic, more open, could actually cause it to fall behind just as its population is also going to be severely going to uh, suffer a free fall. So is this just for now or can you see on the horizon um, uh, the possibility of China with, withdrawing or not being as powerful? It seems to me that all the policies that were put in effect that were to uh, engage China with the world by Deng Xiaoping, they're all being rolled back. Won't that have an internal effect? And the economic policies um, that they're pursuing, 
um, could end up and some of the political issues that they're facing could end up in lack of investment by the U.S., financial support by global markets. I see that there's a more pessimistic outcome for China than you do based upon um, a very complex picture that we can't quite get our arms around because nobody can go there today. Uh, let me make a couple points. Uh, first of all, I hope you're right. I, I hope that China hits a really rough patch. Uh, its economy slows down greatly, and it has all sorts of problems that prevent it from, uh, you know, pursuing regional hegemony in Asia and challenging us around the world. So I, I hope you're right. Uh, will you be right? I don't know. Uh, the one thing I've learned studying international politics over many decades now is that we live in an uncertain world. I mean, you know, you and I remember when the Soviet Union was humming along and nobody in there, nobody in, in the world that we operated in thought that it was going to collapse in 1989, but yet it collapsed and we were all surprised by that. Um, so one can't imagine a situation where China collapses. Uh, one can imagine a situation, I hope this never happens, where the United States ends up in some kind of civil war uh, with the polarization here, you know, badly damages our body politic and has negative economic consequences. You can imagine that. Who knows? But the only thing I would say to you, Lyric, is that my experience dealing with the Chinese is that they're very smart, very clever people. Uh, and they've done a great deal to develop uh, their economy, uh, you know, over the past 30 years. And I find it hard to imagine that they won't make the necessary adjustments to continue growing at somewhere, you know, in the range of 4 to 5% a year. I wonder if a, a weak China might be more dangerous than a strong China in some way. Well, there is that argument for sure. Uh, the, the government may then ha have incentives to lash out and cause a foreign policy crisis or start a war as a way of rallying the people uh, around the flag. We all know that nationalism is a remarkably powerful force in China. Uh, and if you start a conflict with Japan or with the United States or conflict over Taiwan, that's almost certain to rally people uh, at least for some period of time. And the Chinese elites, the governing elites, may have an incentive uh, to cause trouble for that reason. So one has to worry if China slows down, uh, as well as if China continues to grow at a rapid clip. But my argument would be the more dangerous of the two situations is one where they grow at a rapid clip because then they begin to think about dominating Asia and pushing us out uh, beyond the first island chain and then beyond the second island chain. So if you were, given that um, there's not a lot we can do, is there still a role for diplomacy? If you were the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense, what policies would you put in place given this realistic approach? to the U.S.-China relationship. What would you do that's not being done right now? Well, on the diplomatic front, I'd concentrate uh, on dealing with our allies and dealing with the Chinese. Uh, 
and with regard to our allies, I believe the principal weakness in Donald Trump's containment policy was that he did not work with our allies to contain China. And in fact, he had a powerful tendency to slap our allies around, uh, and that was not smart. Uh, I mean, Trump was smart in the sense that he understood we had to contain China, but he didn't fully grasp that we needed allies to do that. So diplomacy is of enormous importance for dealing with our allies. You know, in a funny way, the Chinese, with their wolf warrior diplomacy, have made a major mistake in terms of how they deal with other countries in Asia. Wolf warrior diplomacy is counterproductive from China's point of view. And we should hope that the Chinese continue to pursue wolf warrior diplomacy. At the same time, we should not pursue wolf warrior diplomacy towards any countries in the region. Now, with regard to China, we also want to place a high premium on diplomacy when it comes to dealing with China. This is especially important with regard to Taiwan. I think that President Biden has been very smart not to go too far in talking about defending Taiwan or talking about Ch Taiwanese independence, right? Because that might provoke the Chinese. So he has to be very careful in terms of his diplomatic language when he deals with China over the Taiwan issue, over the South China Sea issue, and over the East China Sea issue. Furthermore, diplomacy matters greatly if we have a crisis. If two ships crash into each other or two ships run into each other, it's very important that the United States place a high premium on diplomacy so that things don't spin out of control. So although I'm in favor of a containment policy that privileges military force, presenting the Chinese with a powerful conventional and nuclear deterrent, at the same time, I do not want to shortchange diplomacy. And what about business relations then as well? If you were an American or multinational business um, uh, dependent on China for 10, 20, 30 percent of your revenues and your business, um, what would you tell them if you were on their board of directors advising them? Well, I think the incentives of the American business community are basically different than the incentives of the national security establishment. The American business community wants to make money, and that's their job, that's their mission. And they don't pay that much attention to balance of power politics. Uh, the, the government pays a lot of attention to these matters. The deep state, as we like to say, pays a lot of attention to the balance of power. Uh, I think it's very important to emphasize moving forward that there's not only a military competition and a political competition that is going to take place between Beijing and Washington. There is also an economic competition involving cutting edge technologies. We, the United States, have long been the dominant country in the world when it comes to developing cutting-edge technologies. The Chinese are now challenging us on that front in areas like AI, quantum computing, 
5G, and so forth and so on. Space exploration, yeah. Yes, we could go on and on. We, the United States, have a deep-seated interest in making sure that we beat them in terms of that competition over high-end technologies. And I think what you're going to see happen moving forward is that the U.S. government is going to get involved in terms of telling businesses what they can and can't do in China in ways that was not the case in the past, because the deep state is correctly, correctly committed to making sure that we win that competition regarding high-end technologies. So more regulations, it'd be more difficult to navigate then doing business with China, especially in terms of technology transfer and Absolutely. And, and, and what you're going to see is the United States moving toward an industrial policy. You already see evidence of this. A, a free, a, you know, a free market economy where, uh, you know, there's no real control over what goods or what technologies flow to China uh, is no longer in the cards. And the United States is going to go to great lengths uh you know, with regard to supply chains, with regard to developing semiconductors and so forth and so on, uh, to make sure we win that race uh, and to make sure that we have uh, the appropriate supply chains to go along with the security competition. Well, um, another thing you write about, which I find very interesting, is culture. And you said that the issue between the United States and China is more structural. It's not really about Chinese culture of 5,000 years. It's, it's, it's the difference in the structure um, of their government. Um, but what about, you, you mentioned this a couple minutes ago, and I just wanted to ask you a little more about it. What about culture in the United States, nationalism in the United States? Are you concerned about the turn that things have been taking recently? Where do you think that's leading us? And if we're a nation divided, um, how can we compete with other countries that are not divided? Well, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that although we are badly divided here in the United States, red versus blue, uh, there's very little division in terms of foreign policy. Uh, as I said before, I don't think that President Biden's policies towards China have been very different than President Trump's policies uh, toward China. Uh, on the foreign policy stage, the Republicans and the Democrats are basically Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, it's in terms of domestic politics where you see big differences. And I think there's no question that if we continue to fight with each other and things get worse and worse over time and you approximate something like a civil war between the two sides, uh, this will weaken the United States and make it difficult uh, to execute a smart foreign policy. All you have to do is look at all the trouble that Biden is having getting ambassadors appointed to important posts overseas. The United States needs ambassadors. And the Republicans are holding up those ambassador appointments uh, in the Senate. And this is just not a good thing. Uh, so one can tell a story where we get ourselves into a heap of a lot of trouble in the years moving forward uh, because of this political polarization. Well, I think, uh, yeah, hopefully not. But uh, 
it, it happened before in history. So I'm hoping it doesn't happen again. Thank you so much for giving all of your insight to us. Um, I think this helps people look at current events and the decisions that they need to make in a way that will be very helpful to them. Professor John Mearsheimer, thank you for joining me today on the Hale Report. Um, if listeners would like to learn more about the topics that we discuss, they can visit your website, which I think is Mearsheimer.com. Is that right? Yes. And also you have, I think, six books on Amazon. Um, and I highly recommend those. Foreign Affairs, if ever, anybody doesn't have a uh, a subscription to get that article, we will be posting a free access uh, link to your article on our website. And the great delusion, I think would be a wonderful Christmas present, especially for some of my children. <laughs> so that's, that's definitely on my list. But really, thank you so much for being here with us and look forward to seeing you again soon in person, hopefully. Thank you, Lyric. It was my pleasure, and I do look forward to seeing you in person for a change. Uh, like you, I'm tired of COVID and all its restrictions. Yes, we all are. So thank you, John, very, very much. This was a, a delight, really a delight. And thank you to the people behind the scenes, too, who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. <laughs>